Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Last weekend, a couple of friends and I tried our hand at an escape room. Escape rooms have rather exploded onto the scene in the last 10 or so years. Players are locked into a room, and you have an, about an hour, usually, to find a key or a code that will help you unlock the door and escape that room. And to find these keys, you have to decipher clues that are scattered throughout the room. Only at first glance, nothing in the room looks like a clue or a code or a key, right? These are just normal objects that you might find in an office or a living room or a warehouse. So part of the trick is to figure out which objects are in fact just normal objects and which objects might be clues. Everything in an escape room needs to be questioned because everything might be different than how it appears at first glance. In this Lent series, we are looking at stories from the second half of the Gospel of, John, or of Mark in which things are different than how they first appear. These stories all contain a paradox, something that at first glance seems absurd or contradictory, but which in fact holds a truth. And it is Jesus who in every story reveals that truth to us. So we begin our series of paradoxes with the story of the transfiguration. This story takes place in the exact midpoint of the Gospel of Mark. The first half of the Gospel focuses on the disciples coming to understand who Jesus is. 
This culminates in chapter 8, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some think that you're John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, kind of the spokesman for the 12 disciples, says, you are the Christ. The disciples have come to understand that the man they have traveled with and have learned from and have seen perform miracles is the Messiah, the divinely appointed leader of Israel. They know who Jesus is. But they don't yet understand what it is that Jesus will do. And this is the focus of the second half of the gospel And it begins with the transfiguration, an event that affirms who Jesus is, but also begins to undo the expectations that the disciples have about what that means. So six days after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus takes Peter, along with James and John, up a high mountain. And this should already start to perk our ears up, because mountains are places where something is revealed, where heaven and earth meet, where God speaks. The best example of this in the Old Testament is Mount Sinai, where God meets with Moses and reveals to him the law, the Ten Commandments. Just as Moses' face is transfigured, becomes radiant in this meeting with God, so too up on this mountain, Jesus is transfigured, becomes radiant in a dazzling light show. And then all of a sudden, he's not alone. Moses and Elijah appear before the disciples, just having a casual conversation with Jesus. Now, there's a lot of significance about the fact that it's Moses and Elijah that appear with Jesus. For starters, they represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. And so they represent the totality of the Old Testament scriptures. There is a sense with their appearance that Jesus rests on the authority of all scripture. And Moses and Elijah were associated for the Jewish people with the last days, with the day of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses promised the people that the Lord would raise up a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And in Malachi 4, God tells the people that he will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So their appearance now on this mountain must have sent the disciples quaking in their boots. For surely, surely this must indicate that the day of the Lord, the day when God would bring judgment on Israel's enemies and secure the ultimate victory for God and God's people, surely this day must be upon them. Well, according to Mark, quaking in their boots was exactly what the disciples were doing. Peter doesn't know what to say or do. He's so frightened, so he says the first thing he can think of, let's build some tents. Peter doesn't know what is going on, but he knows that this is important. He knows something big is happening, and he wants to stay on the scene. 
God's glory is on display before him, and he wants to bask in that glory, to camp out in the majesty of this moment. I don't think any of us would fault him for that. But this moment isn't to last. This is not the moment. This isn't the place or time when God's glory will be most fully on display. So God interrupts the scene. A cloud descends on the little group gathered on that mountain, like the cloud that led the Israelites through the desert, the cloud that descended over the tabernacle, the cloud that appeared over Jesus at his baptism, a cloud filled with the presence of God, and God speaks. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. It's interesting that during this display of glory and bright lights and visions of dead men, that God doesn't say, look at him. He says, listen to him. Which is all the more interesting because Jesus doesn't speak during this transfiguration event. So this must mean that the disciples are to listen to what Jesus says around the transfiguration event, what he said before and what he will say after. And what Jesus says is surprising. Right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, in chapter 8. Jesus tells the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter doesn't much like that. He has just confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah, and this cannot be what happens to the Messiah, the divinely appointed leader of Israel. Peter goes so far as to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him, says he surely can't mean these things. Peter might know who Jesus is, but he does not know what Jesus is about. Peter doesn't understand that God's glory will truly be revealed, not on this mountain, but on another, on Golgotha, the place of the skull, which will be evidenced by what is heard, not what is seen. Jesus is called the Son of God only three times in Mark's Gospel. The first is in chapter 1, right at the beginning, in the baptism of Jesus, where God speaks words very familiar to these at the transfiguration, telling Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The second time is in this story, in the very middle of the gospel, when God speaks these words to the disciples. And the third time is at the end of the book, when a centurion, watching as Jesus takes his last breath on the cross, says, surely this man 
is the Son of God. In baptism, Jesus descends into the water and comes up again. In the transfiguration, Jesus ascends a mountain only to go down again. And in the crucifixion, he climbs up Golgotha and is lifted onto a cross and then descends into death before being raised again. This is what the Son of God must do, must suffer and die before rising in triumph. This is how God's glory is made manifest in the suffering servant. By his resurrection, which first means his death, God in Christ will find his ultimate victory over death itself. God's glory is on full display in this moment of apparent weakness when Jesus gives his whole self over to save those he loves. Jesus knows the disciples don't understand this, that they cannot understand this until they have seen it happen. So he tells them not to tell anyone at this moment what they have seen on the transfiguration. He tells them not to talk about it until they have the whole picture. But Jesus will keep telling them about what is to come. Because when that day comes and they stand on that hill looking at the cross, what they see will not look like glory at all. What they see will make them question everything and wonder if Jesus really was the Messiah after all. So Jesus tells the disciples three times in Mark's gospel, he tells the disciples that he will die. He wants them to know that all of it, his baptism, the transfiguration, and his death, is all part of the same story, all part of the plan, all evidence that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who will have victory over the ultimate enemy of sin and death. After this display of Jesus' authority in the transfiguration, God tells the disciples to listen to Jesus so that, remembering his words, they might have hope even on that day when everything looks bleak. So the question for us then, as we enter this season of Lent, is... Do we listen to Jesus? Do we know where God's glory lies? Or do we have our own idea of what glory looks like? And would we much rather stay up on the mountain, basking in a dazzling light show, than descend into the valley of vulnerability? We have been trained to think of glory in terms of might. The glorious one is the one who has the upper hand, who is strong, who does not lose, who has power. Nations compete for glory on the world stage with their posturing and threats of war. Each Olympics seeks to be more glorious than the last 
with elaborate opening ceremonies. The Grand Canyon is glorious in its vastness. Niagara Falls is glorious in its power. A sunset is glorious by its multitude of colors. We don't often look at an ant and say, my, how glorious. But if we are to take Jesus at his word, then glory, God's glory, is on display most fully in those moments when we feel least strong, least powerful, when we are weak. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, the weakness that Paul writes about here isn't the weakness of our flesh against the temptations of sin. This isn't carte blank permission to go and sin so Jesus can show us how gracious and powerful he is. The weaknesses Paul is writing about, he describes one verse later. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. Those times when people use their might against us and make us feel small. In those moments, our gut tells us to fight back, to gain the upper hand with a witty comeback or a clever plan, or uh, by using our resources to gain momentum and turn the tables. But this is not the path that Jesus says leads to glory. The path that leads to glory is the path that leads to the cross. The path that leads us to die to ourselves and our desire to prove ourselves and gain the upper hand. The path that calls us to trust completely that the grace of Jesus alone is sufficient to carry us in our weakness. That Christ is all that we need. And so Paul writes in his earlier letter to the Corinthians, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. There is a hill in Nagasaki, Japan, called the Nishizaka Hill. On February 5, 1597, 26 people a mixture of native Japanese Christians, three of whom were 12 and 13 years old, and six foreign priests were arrested in Kyoto and Osaka for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were beaten and bloodied and then made to march 480 miles through the snow to Nagasaki so that they could be made a spectacle of on this march, ridiculed in every village, an example to other Christians. Waiting for them on Nishizaka Hill were 26 crosses. And the story goes that upon reaching the hill, one of the children said, 
show me my cross. And the other echoed, show me mine. Today, a monument and a museum dedicated to those 26 martyrs stands on Nishizaka Hill. The theme of both monument and museum is the way to Nagasaki. And the monument depicts 26 figures side by side, composing the horizontal beam of a cross. The way to Nagasaki is the way of the cross. It takes a supernatural strength to endure such a thing. It takes a faith greater than anything I can imagine. Such strength can only come from the God who also endured such pain and ridicule and death. And if God's grace was sufficient for these Christians in the faith of death, then surely it is sufficient for me and for you when we face ridicule, insults, or slander. And surely we can trust in the words of Jesus, who says that despite all the evidence, God is yet victorious over sin and death, for he triumphed over death in love. John Piper says, the ultimate purpose of God in our weakness is to glorify the kind of power that moved Christ to the cross and kept him there until the work of love was done. So as Peter beheld Christ in glory up on that mountain, so we behold Christ in glory on the cross. This is our invitation at all times, but particularly in the season of Lent, to remember and believe that it is only through the cross that God's victory was accomplished. And as we share in that victory, so we are called to share in the cross, to see our moments of weakness, not as shameful, but as opportunities for our faith to be strengthened, our love to be deepened, and our boast to be made in God alone. For only God is glorious. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, be near to us in our hour of need. Strengthen us and give us courage to endure whatever hardship we might face. May we seek the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way that leads us to turn the other cheek, to respond in kindness when people lash out, to bear with one another in patience and in love. May we seek not our own glory or the glory the world promises us, but boast in you and you alone. Lead us to the cross where we might behold Jesus and help us hear his promise, my grace is sufficient for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.